Hi there, and welcome to Geeks and Jocks. This is Ryan Sullivan recording on the late morning of July 13th, 2021. Thank you for listening in. Uh, for newcomers, what is this? Uh, this podcast is, you know, talk about gaming, film, TV, sports, whatever's on my mind. So, if you're new, welcome. Thank you for listening. Uh, before I get into this, uh, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. <clears throat> you can also find this on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. So head on down to those sites. Look for Geeks and Jacks. Plenty of content awaits you. 80 regular episodes and two bonus episodes. And add this one in. The third bonus episode. <laughs> Something to hold people's interest in a little bit uh, before the new season comes in. In a couple months. Definitely got some stuff to talk about. Talk about a couple movies turning 30. That already turned 30 back in the start of July. Uh, talk about Psych at 15 years old, why it helped USA, I think. Uh, several sports stuff, games that are going for a crazy amount of money, and maybe a few other things here in this episode of Geeks and Jocks. Let's just get the gaming stuff out of the way because it is ridiculous. Some of the stuff that's going for... Um, for a stupid amount of money. Like, really stupid amount of money. So where do you begin with this? I guess you gotta go with The Legend of Zelda. So Legend of Zelda for the Nintendo Entertainment System. $870,000. I'm not making that up. $870,000. Now, I don't know if it's just inflation because of what it looks like. Because when the game came out and when it was in production from its run in 87 up through, I don't know, 90, 91, the game came in a gold cartridge to stand out amongst the crowd. I think kind of cool, I guess. But it was, I mean, it was a good game. Uh, I think there's a lot more issues, and I think people want to realize, but hey, at least stood out. I'm just going to look at that for a second. Uh, it, I think it was like a rare box or something. I'm going to look at that for a second. Yeah, it's an original. I'm not sure if it was like a first print run. Or second print run or what, but it's the it has the old uh, Nintendo logo. It's like a circle logo, not an oval one. Of the this is our insurance that Nintendo rated this product for you know seal quality and all that. But there's another one that I'll get into in a second. But it's just like. People have been trying to sell their games, getting them, getting them authorized. I mean, it's been a thing for a long time, maybe like a good decade or so. I, 
I'm not. I'm no expert on it, but it's been around for a long time now, and it's grown substantially. I would say in two, three years, as people are trying to rate, you know, many copies of various games, whether it's for like the Atari systems, uh, Nintendo, maybe some Sega stuff. I. But you'll see it mostly with, like, Nintendo, Super NES, even, like, 64. These games are in these cardboard boxes. and I mean, I hope this person has, like, a trust fund or something. But that pales to the story that I've seen um, after that. And I knew kind of a little bit, like, I... I looked. I found like a the a link to an article of the uh, Zelda thing, and even my own father saw that in like a newspaper. That's how big this story is. But this one will probably be even bigger. Super Mario sixty four. Now the Nintendo sixty four turned twenty five in Japan uh, about a month ago. It'll turn twenty five here in the States in uh, around the end of September. So, let's find Kotaku. One over, over a million and a half dollars. Now, Super Mario 64 is one of the most common games you can find for the 64. This was their best-selling game. It sold 10-plus million copies. Primarily because there wasn't really much to play when when the system first came out. And there weren't many titles um, during the last few months of 96, and even into, like, early 97. So it took a while to get some games, you know, whether it was like a Mario Kart 64, Turok, Doom, GoldenEye, what have you. Um, An auction over the weekend. Super high quality and sealed copy. I'd be curious to see what kind of version, if it's like one of the very first print runs of the game. Yep, one of the very first print runs. Graded... Let's see, it looks like a 9.0. I mean, it's complete in the box. I mean, it actually looks pretty nice, all things considered. But 1.5 million, though, from Heritage Auctions. Oh, 9.8. It's hard to tell, since a 0 could look like an 8 sometimes. Apologize. Fewer than five known sealed copies in such incredible condition, according to the uh, Heritage Auctions, as discussed in the Kotaku article. Starting price of $100,000. I can't imagine this getting getting anywhere... What's the word? I can't imagine this getting more and more expensive as time goes on. I, I, I can't imagine that. And this is considering that there was a Mario game, Super Mario Brothers, that sold for 600000 last year. Oh no, back in April. 
I swear, I thought there was one that sold for a million by like three to like three people. But all that aside, yeah, this is from a Kotaku. This is directly from Kotaku, their person writing it. Quote, all this money being spent on old video games makes me feel a bit sick. I can only imagine what even a fraction of all this cash could do to help so many people around the world. But folks like to hide their assets and wealth in strange ways. I get it. I mean, I don't get it. I'm not rich. Unquote. I think... I, I don't know. I, I, there's not really a direct... There's not really a direct answer on what... Yeah, it's it's you know you're wasting all your money on something you're probably never going to play. That stuff could go to like a like a freaking charity or something. One point five million, you know that that could get like a project done. And there, this article also brought up uh, Pokemon cards. Like, I don't know if it's nostalgia or or what, but it's like. It's getting sadder and uh, sadder. And actually, speaking of Pokemon, there was like something about a month or two ago where a kid was selling their cards just to have a healthy dog. Like their dog, like his his dog got sick, and I th- I think it needed like an operation, and he decided to raise the money by selling the uh, selling the cards. And the Pokemon Company. This is, I mean, this is a good. This is a nice story, by the way. I think uh, there was a GoFundMe that happened, and the Pokemon Company actually gave the kid those same cards, you know, for free. But we also got to talk about the sad reality as well. This was like a couple months ago as well. Uh, Target ref- not wanting to sell uh, Pokemon cards anymore because of how crazy it got. How crazy it's getting is you know today. People want these cards, and it's not kids that are getting them. It's these, it's these adults, and they don't want to see a Black Friday type of incident. It's themselves. They just don't. They're more concerned about the safety of their customers, which is, which is nice to actually see. But yeah. The, the, all this money can go to something else, you know, finding ways to solve, you know, like world hunger and just. I mean, I'm at, I'm I'm a cheapskate at times when it comes to buying games, but there'll be times I mean I'll bite the bullet on uh, getting a game at a at a used game store, you know, it may not be. Of 1.5 million, but I'll definitely <clears throat> spend some money to get some games. You know, depending on the title in question. You know, I think I'd be willing to spend 25 on something like a Crash Bandicoot 2. So with uh, new consoles, still. Out of out of reach. Uh, I actually want to buy myself a uh, Nintendo Switch, and the reason why because I wanted to try out some of the, that Mario 3D All Stars game. 
It's primarily because I never played uh, Sunshine. Pick, picked up the system about a month ago, and I mean, along with the PS5 and the Xbox Series S and X, it's hard to find switches. I know they're having some shortage issues with like semiconductors, so it probably is hurting uh, Nintendo a little bit. It's kind of the same thing with. Sony, Microsoft, and I'd say even any of the computer companies that are trying to make parts for their laptops, computers, graphic cards from from companies. N- Nintendo is trying to uh, do a new version of of the Switch, and this was announced I think like a week or t- week ago, maybe two weeks ago, of of a switch with like an OLED screen. And I think that's it's supposed to be like a really good screen like no big issues compared to like LCD screens. At least that's what I've heard. But the specs that I've seen are kind of they they make me scratch my head a little bit and it really angered a lot of people. So I think it's uh Double the storage. You get 32 gigabytes of a regular model. You get 64 with this. Supposedly some uh, better battery life a little bit. Um, they changed like a USB port for like an Ethernet port. Which, I mean, maybe if you like playing like fighting games or like games that require quick inputs, that might help, but... And the price is at three hundred fifty dollars, but like three fifty. I mean, that's good in terms of Nintendo systems, but the other systems, no, I don't think it's really worth an improvement. I, I, what I mean is, it, it's not. I don't think it's worth the price that they're asking for. Maybe two fifty or two hundred, but. I don't know. I mean, it'll it'll sell okay, but people wanted to see like a Switch Pro, and I think the reason why they want to see a Switch Pro, these people, is that the support for the Switch is still big, and they still got to strike when the iron's hot with keeping people interested in buying the system. Because they don't have a backup thing anymore. They discontinued the 3DS last year. They still need to put out titles. And they need to figure that out quickly. I mean, there's going to be a new Zelda game down the road. Maybe next year. But they still need to keep people wanting to buy games for the system and buy the console. I'm not sure if this alternative will... I mean, it'll be nice for some people, but Nintendo just does a bad job with re-releasing consoles. That, that's how I've always looked at it. They, they really screwed up with the NES by not releasing the top-loader earlier, that that should have came out in like 91, 92, early 92 at least, not late 93 where the system's gone after a year following 
that re-release. Super NES, I wouldn't give it much flack. Um, yeah, lack of lack of S video components and RF, but still, I mean, it's not like the original model is an unreliable piece of crap like the model one NES and the Wii and whoever thought about that redesign did not it was basically an online stripped version of the uh, of the original Wii so it could just only play games I think it was like a $50 system I would have just kept the online and then sold it for like 50 for like a hundred dollars. I mean, I know it's for like kids, but part of, but part of that, part of that era is the people getting the system and maybe playing some of these digital games that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, well, and there's stuff you can't get anywhere else now with the uh, PSP, which is a little weird, and I'll try to explain it as good as I can. So, about four months ago, back in March, Sony announced they were going to shut down the stores of the PS3, PSP, and PS Vita. Drew a lot of backlash. So Sony retracted. And at the very least, they're keeping the PS3 and uh, Vita stores open when they talked about it back in early April. But they were going to shut down the PSP store. Now, there was a bit of concern on what happens because you can buy PSP games on the PS3 and uh, Vita. And... You can still do that, actually. It's it's just mostly relegated to the PSP when you play it on the actual system itself. So that is very nice. Very respectful, I think. To be able to still buy the games on other systems and to transfer over to the PSP. Uh, PSP. And PSP, I mean, it, it has quite a bit of titles. And I actually looked up how much it had altogether, and including regular games, the minis, and the PS1 classics, it has over 500, over 600 uh, titles that you can choose. So, I mean, it. it, it the world is your oyster. Like, pick and choose what you want. Man, getting old. That was like, I was like a teenager when that came out back in '05. Man, time flies. Speaking of time flies, um, let's talk about the USA Network a little bit. So, USA Network's been around since the um, since the seventies. It was started as like the uh, MSG network, and it grew as its own channel, 
or it was like a subsidiary of. Uh, I actually looked it up uh, last night, but it was like it was like a subsidiary channel, and it was it was like a small type of cable channel, and then it grew in the uh, in the eighties, and th- they have for a very long time have created many TV shows of their own. They had. You know, like, like like even like in the '90s, you know, they had stuff like uh, like Duckman and, and Weird Science. Like like they had a they had a, a niche market to themselves of sleazy type of shows during that time period, which is funny considering I feel like some sleaziness was more like an MTV thing, and later on uh, some Viacom channels like Comedy Central. <laughs> but they I mean they've always had original shows but I would say the early 2000s it wasn't all that grand considering um, that it, it didn't have many and the channel itself I mean was slowly becoming the, the Dick Wolf Network and it still very much is the Dick Wolf Network with one of the freaking Chicago shows and Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Sometimes it gets absurd the amount of reruns they give to that guy's shows. And if they shove NCIS down everyone's throats. Which is not Dick Wolf, but still, it's like... But still, going back to the original point, uh, they had some original stuff. They had Monk, which was... Really big deal. It was lighthearted, but still serious at the same time. About an OCD man solving crimes. Um, they had some other stuff like Dead Zone, uh, the Forty Four Hundred, and of course WWE wrestling. But I don't think those have. I mean, WWE has some impact. And I would say Monk has some impact for the network. But I think Psych. I think Psych has a lot more impact for USA than I would say any of their shows during their 40 plus years as as a, as a cable channel. So what is Psych? Uh, Psych is a crime show. It's a very, it's very much, you know, similar to Monk, it's like a light-hearted comedy show. It has some drama here and there, but otherwise it's strictly comedy it came out July 7th, 2006, turned 15 last week. And I think it's pretty important as a whole for USA because without it, you don't see you don't see these other shows that get put on that network. You know, the USA does not take a chance on something like say a burn notice or a white collar or some of these other shows without Psych existing. And it's a I mean it's a very funny show and it's a show that I think even if you're not a fan of crime shows like me, you'll have some fun watching it. Especially I'd say the first few seasons. So what is the premise, you might say? Um, it's about a slacker, Sean Spencer, played by James Roday. He is a very intelligent man 
who has a photographic memory, thanks to his policeman, Father Henry, played by Corbin Burnson. And Sean is able to find little details, like the finer stuff. I guess with the way his father is, you know, the finer details can help you solve that crime. And so, in the pilot of the show, Sean figures out something that could lead to a reward, I think like a cash reward, and he calls in like a hotline to report the crime. He goes to what he thinks is a a reward, but he gets arrested thanks to thanks to stubborn uh, the head detective uh, Carlton Lassiter played by Tim Omenson and Sean realizes how much trouble he's in even though even though he's not a criminal and he gets out of it by telling the cops that he is a psychic and so he takes um task of trying to solve the crime and he ropes in his uh, pharmaceutical buddy and best friend since childhood Gus played by Dulé Hill and eight years of craziness eight years of fun and those are those are the main cast along with two, along with two others that really helped the show as well uh, Chief Chief Vic, played by Kirsten Nelson, and uh, Detective Juliet O'Hara, played by Maggie Lawson. And what what's great about this show, as what with that casting, is that none of them left. And I think that's always a headache when you have a show that's been on the air for more than five years, and you reach a point, especially for an hour-long show, you, you don't see that. You don't see a, a cast stick around for that long. Like, one of the examples I'll give is uh, ER, which is which is a show my father loved, like, the first four or five years of the show. When George Clooney left, he gave up on the show. I mean, there was a charm, I think, to ER during its first six, seven years on on the on the air. And I think yeah, I mean there's always different people at hospitals and but still you fall in love with that original cast and once another of them leave it's you know, it's like why bother? I mean some will stick around but anyway, uh yeah, it's like it it's great to see that they didn't like like none of them left. And what what I think is it's a, it's not it's not an ultra serious show. It's not it's not ultra serious like like CSI and Law and Order and some of these other shows. You know they they develop these characters and you get to know them quite well beyond just the crime solving. Like you you see what makes them tick. You see what detracts them the pros and cons there's episodes where it's like you'll have an episode where maybe sean doesn't have great confidence in solving a crime they did that like in a second season 
um, where Lassiter, or as Sean calls him, Lassie, you know, Lassie's solving, solving all these crimes, and confidence is a little drained in Sean and Gus, and they find something extraordinary that they're able to leapfrog past Lassie for for this crime solved and you know confidence build up they like they, they do a lot of things that are very lighthearted it's goofy it it, it, it knows when to uh, when to have the funny moments most of the time not not a hundred percent but I would say like 85 90 percent the show they pick the right time when to be funny and when to be serious It's just out there as a show. It's it, it's amassed a, a cult fan base that has grown to love it, and I I know that Universal is aware of how big the show was for them. Because I think without, like I said, without them, you don't see many of these other shows that USA had that that air for at least five, six, maybe seven years. I mean, Burn Notice ran for seven years, I believe. White Collar was six years. Suits was five years. Like, they took chances. They took big chances. Um, is it is psych for everyone? No, I mean the the goofiness could be a potential turnoff, but still, it's it's watchable it, and it doesn't go overboard with its references. It does rely a little bit, maybe a little too much on the 80s references, but it's not as ridiculous as, say, Family Guy. Um, If I had to pick a favorite season, I would say the second season. It, like, it's just, it was very creative with with the crimes they had, the, the way, the way they're solved, the people they got involved in it, like, Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just rank the seasons because I've seen them all. Uh, saw them all like seven years ago, well, six years ago. Considering the eighth season uh, made its way to streaming in 2015, season two I think is their best season. They did an amazing job with it, and it has probably one of the funniest season finales of the show. Um. Followed by season six, like it, it, it felt like, and I'll try to explain it with other seasons that I'll explain why. Season six, it felt like the second season, it, maybe just a tad below it, but it felt like they were getting the creativity going with some of their episodes, uh, and it has some of the more interesting ones of the bunch, but still really funny. Um, I'd say season three would be next. Not as good as um, two or six, but still it was able to craft together some really good plot lines. And it has um, has my favorite season finale where it like, there's a lot riding on uh, on the entire group to to solve the crime before things get worse and it gets personal a little bit for uh, Sean. 
I'd say season seven. I think it takes a little bump midway through the season, but otherwise, it it was a really good season. Like it, it they were definitely running out of steam by then, but. They were still able to do some stuff like the 100th episode, which is really funny. Uh, second half of, of Psych Seasons, they, they always found a way to like rebound and just able to create you know, a lot of memorable parts of the second half of, episode, of seasons. Uh, season 8, I'd say it's a take-it-or-leave-it type of thing. Um, it, obviously they were running out of steam by then, but I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just, what can you do with these final ten episodes? And, yeah, I mean, none of these episodes are bad, but some of, they're, they're just, there's some uniqueness, like the remake episode that they did. They, they did a remake of an episode they did in the first season, and, well... Not, I'd say just watching. If you if, watch the first season episode of it, and then watch the eighth season, you'll be surprised with how much. I it, I think it was just basically to make fun of remakes altogether. There's some other stuff like uh, there were like a horror episode. Actually, bring that up. They they do some tributes to some horror episode horror films, and it's. They actually, they do, they do some amazing things with, um, with, with the horror stuff they parody. Uh, season five, I'll, I'll talk the fourth season just a tiny bit before I talk about it. the se- The fourth season, I think, is their worst season, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But season five, I think, was like a rebound in just getting back to what made, like, the first three seasons pretty good. And getting back to, you know, you know, making the episodes stand out, you know, creating some, you know, funny moments, light-hearted stuff. Uh, uh, the season finale was really nice, and it, I think it has one of the sweetest endings of, uh, like, as far as, like, character development goes, and just... It's it's real nice to see it not end on a serious note or very lighthearted. It, uh, but yeah, I mean, just getting getting some of the great ideas put out for some of these episodes. Uh, then season one. This is one that I think it is a little rough, but you gotta understand uh, where people might not be entirely pleased with me saying that. Um, it's a little rough, but it, it's it's a first season. What do you expect? It, they're, they're learning how to do things the first time around, and it... Not every joke is going to land accurately. Some ones will fall flat, but at least they were trying. They were putting in the effort... Yeah, so it, it does seem a little unfair to put the season first season below most of these other seasons, but I gotta look at it how it is, and you know what? Gotta start somewhere, and that's how it led to 
getting better and better, you know. And I say the worst is the fourth season. It definitely has its share of episodes where it's like, I think they tried to make it like a different tone for the show where it felt pretty serious. And I think seriousness does work for Psych, but not all the time. And I think the first half of it, it's like, yeah, they're trying, but and they're not getting there all the way. They're not they're not bad episodes, by the way. Uh, but they did re. I felt like they did rebound with like the second half of the season, and that season finale is one of the more gripping ones for the show's run. I, I definitely would like to do like a top ten favorite episodes at some point. But yeah, I mean, Psych. It was pretty important for. Um, for USA, and it definitely deserves it definitely deserves a talk here on this podcast. So, where do we begin as a move on to to sports? I guess talk some good stuff for a second. Talk about Tampa Bay Lightning winning the cup again, beating the Montreal Canadiens. One of their guys had like a crazy press conference of ripping Canadians fans and uh, chugging beer during it. The guy actually wound up getting like a contract with like Bud Light. <laughs> like they loved how that press conference went. No, I'm serious. That that guy got a contract because of that. <laughs> um, yeah, Tampa. Tampa's been on a roll the last two seasons. Uh, first time in the Cup final since '93 for the Canadians, and not enough to uh, get past uh, Tampa. Tampa, not Tampa. Canada has not won a Cup since '93 as well, so that's got to be disheartening, and it's angered a lot of uh, Habs fans because. There isn't a lot to sports in Montreal. There just isn't. I mean, they got their Canadian football team, but the Canadian the Canadians are basically a treasure to Canada in terms of their you know because they they have the most championships out of any team in the NHL, twenty four championships. They are the Yankees of hockey. And they dominated the sport for a long time. And it just hasn't in since 93. I mean, they've made it to the playoffs a number of times. They've done well. They've come close to making it to the, to the Stanley Cup final, but have faltered. The closest I think they were was like 2014. They were in the conference final, losing to the New York Rangers. There's been other... Canada teams that have been in it. I mean, Vancouver's been in it twice. Ottawa's been in it. I think Toronto might have been in it once, but I might be wrong on that. Uh, Calgary, Edmonton, like, like, like they've all been given a chance. It just, you know, the the opposing side does better. And I'm trying to think of like who's been in the finals that that won it. Uh, Rangers won it at least. Uh, 94. You had the Devils who won it three times. Detroit's won it like four or five times. Colorado's won it twice. Pittsburgh like three times. Chicago three times. L.A. three times. Like 
It comes in bunches. It's just crazy that America has dominated ice hockey as far as the NHL goes. Like, it's, like it's astounding. Do I think Canada will win a cup at some point again? Yeah, absolutely. They got to at some point. I, I can't imagine Montreal giving up that quickly. I see them at least winning a cup within the next couple of years. If they can just pull off a run like they did this this past year, sky's their limit. So let's jump into the crazier side, and it's sad that even having to talk about it like a week or two later, it, it, it's just... I'm just tired of the way ESPN... Like, I, I'm not really an ESPN watcher as much as I used to be. I'll watch it for, like, Monday Night Football and maybe, like, a, a baseball game here and there. But as a whole, I don't even know who they, ha- who they have on SportsCenter anymore. I don't even know who they... Who, who even has long, long-tenured runs anymore? Like, considering that Kenny Maine left at the end of May... And some of these other people are being dropped. And I know they're trying to bring back uh, regular sports of you know, like the break, getting the NHL back. And honestly, we sh- the NBA Finals. It's been a decent series, two one. Granted, the outcomes are not the best, but it's still. It's going to be competitive. I think you're going to see six games out of this. I think Phoenix will win it in six. And unfortunately, out prior to the finals beginning, that should have been the discussion, not ESPN's management. And this goes towards... Let's get out of the way. Uh, last year, the NBA was in a bubble. And... NBA Countdown was going to be down there. Hindsight was Rachel Nichols, who was reported for ESPN on two stints. I think her second stint now is uh, like six years, I think. After like four or five years with uh, Turner going doing stuff for CNN, doing stuff for um, TNT, whenever they would have their NBA stuff. And she wound up getting replaced by uh, Maria Taylor. Now, Taylor has been with ESPN, I think, for about eight years now. And in the midst of this, Nichols talked to this Mendelssohn guy. I, I got who is like a advisor for LeBron James. I'll look for that Mendel. It was a guy that that basically like, and I think he, I think Nichols also talked to I think an agent, the agent of LeBron James, basically frustrated that she got ousted, and she did not know that there was a recording going on. 
And so, I don't know what you do. It's, it got it got leaked. It got leaked uh, about a week or two ago, and it became a hot-button topic based on how ESPN is as a whole. And I think that Mendelssohn guy, I hope I got that person's last name right, uh, basically saying nothing that could have been done with her getting replaced because, you know, ESPN supported stuff like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and all that. Like, ESPN really doubled down on Black Lives Matter. <laughs> like, with their, with their commercials. And it's like, you're... And I've seen those commercials last year and even, like, parts of this year. It's like, you're not making yourself look good as a network. Because it shows that you're going to have... You're showing favoritism towards a movement instead of being neutral. And I don't think you can be neutral anymore, unfortunately, for networks. Because otherwise you get the whiny brats on Twitter that'll be like, Oh, they're not on... They're not supporting this. They gotta be on the other side. Maybe they just choose not to. So basically, uh, Rachel Nichols talked about that it's in, it was in her contract to host the show. And that while she appreciates Taylor and she believes in her to do well, I think Taylor will keep doing well for another 10, 20 years. It felt it felt like ESPN was trying to do this for a diversity sake. And ESPN's track record of diversity, man, I I don't think it's as good as they think it is. And this is something that actually got brought up on on a show that Dan Lebitard does now on his own. He got ousted from ESPN, I believe, this year. And he had a couple other former ESPN colleagues that called the network out. Called them out. And, yeah, it just... And even, like, Mike Golick, who used to work on there, uh, slammed the way ESPN handled the whole situation. Because, uh... Prior to the prior to the finals beginning, they replaced Rachel with uh, Malika Andrews for uh, sideline reporting. I think that just I think that just brought more attention than than making the situation than trying to cool down the situation. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, what I'll say is this: I don't blame Rachel Nichols for for the way she acted. Unprofessional, yeah, a little bit, but she has a reason to be upset because she goes to Florida. She thinks she's gonna be the host. Instead, they give it to someone who hasn't been there for a long time. And if I'm being honest, I think I think Nichols isn't all that great of a reporter, or at least her second stint of reporting. And I think Taylor's kind of mediocre, and she doesn't really cover much other than college football. Maybe some college basketball, but otherwise I don't see anything that makes her stand out. You create the situation like why not just have the two of them together? Why does it have to be one or the other? Why not make them co-host last year? 
You put them together, you have one of them start on one segment, then you have the other on the other segment, and there's discussion like between the their their peers and each other. Or would it be bad that a white white girl would be the main host? Or whatever. Like it's just Jimmy Pitaro really needs to like you know what? ESPN needs to just like they need they need to burn ESPN to the ground and rebuild it altogether as far as as far as like their journalism goes, their ethics and all that. Like this is just this is just a disaster. This is this is like poor a poorly built company now these days compared to where they were even like ten years ago. But that said, I mean, I probably would have worded it a little bit differently if I was in Nichols' uh, shoes. I would have been like, you know what? I, I really don't like the way ESPN's handled things. They, they, I might look to maybe sue for because they violated my contract or whatever. <sighs> just a really bad situation altogether and it just you know if there's a reason why ESPN struggles it's because of their political and racial pandering I mean I don't want to say that but I have to like they just just make situations look worse they got reporters who 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 race bait and just it's not it's not even a journalism sports network anymore it's more like a opinionated vlog type thing, only with a bigger budget. I believe one of the theories is that Taylor's contract expires at the end of July, and I supposedly she's wanting allegedly eight million dollars a year. I don't think she's worth that much money. I think she's worth maybe like three, four million. For being there for that long, but not, not eight million, especially for someone who only covers college football. And one of the most menial things, like she's basically like a Tracy Wolfson or Aaron Andrews. They they barely use those people on Fox and CBS. Yeah, I mean that's just it. ESPN needs to be rebuilt. That's all I'm going to say. Like they need to really reevaluate themselves as a whole, because I mean they've had their ups and downs. Their ratings are up, but it's not where it was two years ago. And the NBA has seen better ratings, um, eight million plus at least for Game One, but that's still a far cry from where it was uh, even like two three years ago. I mean, yeah, small market teams, but. You'd think maybe without like seeing like a LeBron James in there, that might help a little bit. No Golden State Warriors, you think that might help? Nope. I I think with the way things were handled last year by the league, yeah, yeah, you're not going to see some people. People just want to watch the game. They're not interested in in the political pandering. And actually, speaking of James. The guy's a piece of crap. 
But this comes with like something that I can't imagine anyone really doing. I mean, maybe a little bit, but so so like any like any parent, you know, LeBron will watch his kids play play sports, you know, or see other activities. And his son Bronny is uh, his son Bronny is you know playing basketball and I guess probably pretty good, like father like son, and I'm sure he's pretty happy about seeing his kid play the sport. And they had a game a couple weeks ago, or not last week. I'm sorry, it's been a while since I've read the story, but uh, Bronny's team is down. He draws a foul. And the PA guy, and this is actually in an arena named after LeBron. So, the PA guy rips rips Bronny a little bit, saying the only reason he drew the foul is because the namesake of the arena and the father, his father being being LeBron. Now LeBron flips out and actually goes past like a gate to go to the PA guy. What I'll say is this. The PA guy should not have said that. I would have said that I don't agree with that call, but that's uh, it's, it's a shame, shame that didn't look like a foul. But to directly go after Bronny, that makes you look petty. It makes you look stupid. You gotta learn to have some restraint if you're doing the basketball stuff. That said, um, LeBron should not have gone directly towards those guys. It's just, like, if you want even more reasons to be a despicable piece of crap, here you go. It's got to be upsetting because it's like, you embarrass yourself in front of you, you embarrass your kid, you embarrass the school with your mannerisms, and he doesn't have a clue to why he gets hated consistently. His behavior like, like that. that like, what does Adam Silver do? I, I wish Adam Silver would stop being a, a a coward. I wish he would stand up for himself and tell LeBron, "Dude, cut the attitude. You're not making things better." Now, hate can drive ratings up a little bit, but I'm not sure it's worth hate watching all the time. And I think his behaviors, and this is something I'll go into with movies just a little bit. Um, I really think this will make Space Jam a new legacy, along with the very expensive budget, flop. Because it's like, why would I support someone whose behavior has become even more mediocre as time goes on? I really think his movie will underperform badly. It's going to underperform, and I don't think many critics will like it. They didn't like Space Jam, despite it doing well. 
And honestly, I can't imagine it breaking $100 million. I think it's going to be very difficult. Space Jam didn't, but it came pretty close at like $90 million. Uh, couple NFL players getting busted for like drug charges and like just in like Uzi, like one of them, like I think it was like Frank Clark of the Chiefs had like an Uzi and got charged with assault following a uh, like an arrest back in February. Man, we're only a couple of weeks before training camp. You lose some of your big guys, man. Hard to get back to the Super Bowl with some of those key components of your defense. Um, MLB, pretty good home run derby. I mean, Pete Alonso repeats. Guy has tremendous power. I mean, pretty good competition, all things considered. Very tight races in most of them, especially with um, Trey Mancini, uh, Juan Soto, and Shohei Itani with two tiebreakers. Like it, it had some, it had some fun, all together. And NASCAR, uh, pretty much been the Hendrick Motorsport show for, for a good while now. It's gone to other drivers. I know Kyle Busch won, won a race, the Pocono double race thing that they race on Saturday and then they race on a Sunday. Something I think that the drivers really enjoyed uh, last year. Um, Kurt Busch winning in Atlanta. Like, there's always something about Atlanta that makes makes it so fun to watch. Uh, some of these very close races. Um, they're going to repave that track for next year, and a lot of drivers are, gonna, are very upset about it because it's like they're trying to do ways to make it similar to. Talladega and uh, Daytona, according to some drivers, uh, to, like there's a reason why people love Atlanta. I and I guess the drivers are getting frustrated that the executives are not not paying attention to them. Hey, I mean, if why why fix something that isn't broken? I think that's basically what the drivers are saying. Yeah, why fix it? There's there's good stuff with uh, Atlanta with their with their design. It's a really good track. It's not the longest, but it's not the shortest. Tough competition every year. You lose that, I think, with this redesign or repaving of it. So moving on, the last bit of movies. So I'll start with the. Uh, I'll start with the with the somber one, and this was about a about a week ago. The passing of director Richard Donner. So Richard Donner had been doing stuff for about forty plus years, going back to the '60s, and he was a guy that really made an impact on most of the stuff he did. When he did TV, he directed not directed, I think he wrote like many shows like, even if it was just like two, three episodes he he, he was involved in television heavily, you know, whether it's like Man From Uncle, Get Smart, Ironside Gilligan's Island, like he, he had heavy involvement in 
writing a couple episodes for for TV shows. But while people will ignore that, unfortunately, people will look at the movies that he did. He did The Omen in 76. That's pretty well regarded. But if you're going to remember Donner for one thing, it's Superman. Superman was a big deal back in 1978. Because it was serious. It had big effects that were amazing for that time. It was a huge hit. Like, it followed the comics pretty well. Well regarded. Well received. You know, from critics, fans did extremely well. And he got ousted from the second film when they were making it, and only in the last 15 years has a cut of his film made it onto DVD and uh, streaming. <clears throat> and a lot of people love Donner's cut of the film. Like, people really appreciate that film. Um... Uh, but there's other films that he did that people love. If you want an example of an 80s film that still gets that big following, it's uh, The Goonies. Goonies is a really good film. Because kids being kids early on, and the, the sense of adventure, comedy, drama, romance, suspense action. It got everything. It's got, you know, you know, great villains. It's a great cast of kids. Like, like, like it, it, there's not a dull moment for the film. And then you have Lethal Weapon in 87. He directed the, the four Lethal Weapons. Uh, it was a big deal because you didn't see quality like that for a buddy cop film and it led to many other films similar to this nature. And he did like some other stuff as well like uh, producing I think he was I think he produced uh, Tales from the Crypt which ran for like 7 years on TV. Like he was like he loved horror. Like to be involved with that production all the way around that says something. Uh, he produced the original X-Men. So he had, so he still had a love for the comic book stuff, but not as heavily like other people. And actually, speaking of that, um, so the last few weeks, uh, movie theaters have done rather well, all things considered, with with the uh, ninth Fast and Furious doing pretty well making over half a billion worldwide, which is the best for any movie in this pandemic. Uh, Forever Purge did pretty well, I think, a couple weeks ago, or last week. Um, Boss Baby 2 did okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, these newer films are starting to pick up a little bit. And Black Widow came out, uh, last Friday, this past Friday, and made eighty million. So this was why it's kind of why I waited a little bit. I wanted to do an episode last week, but decided to wait just because I wanted to see what the numbers would be like for this film. And from the sounds of it, it's done well for its first weekend. But I'd be curious to see if 
if it has any legs heading to its second and third weekends. But it has drew some ire, I guess you could say, from a guy that did work on a Marvel movie, Stephen Dorff. And I think his sentiments ring with what people feel in the same manner as uh, Dorf. So Dorf basically ripped on what Marvel has done, and really, I think just the comic book films in general. Like it, like it just—it doesn't feel like a film. It feels like feels like something that got crapped on and crapped crapped out, and just you know, blah blah blah. But his sentiments is something that has grown. I'd say within the last six, seven years of the glut of comic book movies hitting the theater. So, I want to find that article. And, there, independent.co.uk. Hmm. Basically ripping on Hollywood. Let's see. Where is it? I still hunt out the good shit because I don't want to be in Black Widow. That's that's what Dorf said. It looks like garbage to me. It looks like a bad video game. Hmm. He has annoying ambivalence. This is from the article of someone who's clearly lived a lot of life and had a blast doing it. Quote, I don't have a family yet and I don't have five ex-wives that I have to pay for. Unquote, he jokes. Quote, I pretty much still only have me to deal with. Unquote. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood, it's like too many people. It's like no one can have a like a sustaining relationship and did some other you know, films. Basically, I think what it means is that it there's too many Marvel films, I think, in his eyes, and too many comic book films. Like, it looks fake to him, and this is a sentiment that even, like, Lou Ferrigno, the 70s Hulk, even shared, which is a little unfair considering there's a lot of advancements that have been good for uh, comic book films over the last 20 years or so. I'd say even like 25 to a certain extent. But yeah, the over-reliance on CGI and, you know, I think it worries people like Dwarf because he likes to see original stuff get made. He likes to see people who have a vision like like a like a Stanley Kubrick like he wants to be the guy involved with a guy or a girl that can be the next Stanley Kubrick they, they have a vision of what their film is and it's something that could be loved by many you're not going to see the days where you see 
a Top Gun be the number one film, or a Beverly Hills Cop, or a Home Alone, or any of that. Now these days, it's mostly animated films, fantasy films, comic book films, sci-fi films. It's not some serious. It's not a drama like Forrest Gump or, or or something like. I'm trying to think of like other films, or even like a war film like Saving Private Ryan. You're not going to see that. Although American Sniper was one of the exceptions for the 2010s, you're not you're not seeing that. And actually, speaking of. Uh, older films. A couple films turned uh, 30 uh, back at the start of this month. I'll start with the um, serious one. Boys in the Hood from John Singleton. The late John Singleton to be exact. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Ice Cube, Cuba Gooding Jr., like Angela Bassett, well, like Nia Long, Morris Chestnut, like very young actors of this time. Or at least, it's amazing how young the number of them were during that time. Uh, basically, the film is set in South Central Los Angeles, the hood, where anything can happen at any point. People can get killed. You know, it's rough for these characters. Learn, learn respect and and all that. Some do, some don't. Like, it's crazy how much. Like how well regarded the film is now these days, it it really depicted life in the hood. Like it felt real. It there was nothing fake about it. That's that's a little fitting considering. I mean, so you know, you have Ice Cube who's with like N.W.A. and their depictions of L.A. through their songs. I mean, there's a reason why they were one of the bigger biggest rap groups of the late 80s and uh, early 90s. You know, you see you know, you see some fun moments out of it, you see some serious moments, you know, like, heartbreaking parts, like, it like, it covers a lot of, like, what they think made 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 it what it was in, in L.A. And did pretty well for for a summer release. It did did good given its budget and all that. And this this came out I think at like a really breaking point with the whole Rodney King thing that happened thirty plus years ago. And you see a year later, like man, the riots and just man. I've I've seen most of the film. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's really good. It's like the way they wrote the characters and just the way the scenes are constructed. Like, if you, if you want want something good from John Singleton, this is, I would say, this is like one of the top films to to look at. So the other film that I'll bring up is uh, Terminator Two: Judgment Day. Terminator Two, like the, the Terminator was. A modest hit, but a lot of people loved it. Like the way the future looked like, the storyline, the music, like like you liked these characters. And everybody wanted to be like a I'm sure a lot of people liked the way Arnold Schwarzenegger was used as a bad guy 
despite not having the greatest screen time. Then you get a sequel like this, like, there was a vision to what James Cameron wanted to do. It was one of the very first movies to be $100 million for its budget. It was a film that had some really good effects with Robert Patrick's T-1000, like that titanium alloy or whatever it was. Like, it felt like a revolution with with those special effects, and it had a great story to boot for people. You know, it explored more into Sarah Connor and her son. You know, the Terminator actually being a good guy and actually getting a lot more development time compared to the first movie. Like, there was a lot to like with it, and you know, a lot of people consider it like one of the, one of the best sequels ever, or better than the first. You know, it, but it did. You know, the the amount of CGI is definitely what I think makes people amazed about it. I think, and unfortunately, we live in an era now where CGI is has dominated a lot of stuff. Sometimes it gets overly redundant how fake certain stuff looks. I mean, I think we do need to go back to the days where practical effects need to be used. I mean, I'm not saying abandon CGI quickly, but I think think maybe we should make things look real and give give it an entertaining feel for the audience. So that's about it for this third bonus episode of Geeks and Jocks. So, as I said before, I'm looking to bring back the show for a new season in around, I'd say, mid-September. So I'll probably put like a put like a, an official air date for like the first episode of the new season, probably in a month or so. Uh, as I said before, this is on Anchor.fm. You can also find this on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. Head on down to those places. Search for Geeks and Jacks. 80 plus episodes, 80 regular, two bonuses, and add in this third one as well. <laughs> so with that, this is Geeks and Jacks. I am Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe, stay protected, take care of yourself, take care everyone.